Sometimes I wonder what we ever did before social media. Uh, this, this morning I was cruising around Twitter, and a pastor friend of mine had posted a comic strip in his timeline, and it was two men sitting on a hillside. I'm sorry, I'm not a, much of a comic guy, so I don't know the name of the particular comic, but one man was sitting on the ground, and his friend was standing nearby him, and the man on the ground said, I hate the term Good Friday. And the man said, Why? The man on the ground said, well, on that day, my Lord was hanged upon a tree. And his friend said, well, if you were going to be hanged on that day, and he volunteered to take your place, how would you feel? The man on the ground said, good. And his friend said, have a good day. Have a nice day. And he walked away. It's kind of a mic drop moment. Now, friend, even though that comic expresses not really the, the true meaning of, of good that I explained earlier. It does indeed capture the grammar, the basic grammar of the cross, that the Son of God died in our place. The 50-cent technical theological term for this is penal substitutionary atonement. That is that Christ on the cross took our penalty he did it in our place. It's penal substitutionary atonement. Now, whether you realize that or not, friends, we've been singing of that all evening. In Hallelujah for the Cross, we sang, and there he bled and died for me. Hallelujah for the Cross. In the precious blood, we sang, my Savior's pure atoning blood shed for the wrath I'd earned. And see the destined day arise, we sang, Jesus, who but you could bear wrath so great and justice fair. The implication it being for us. And stricken, smitten, and afflicted, we praise the Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. I could go on, but you get the picture. Our hope of salvation, friends, rests on this awesome and glorious truth that Jesus died not merely as an example for us, and not really even merely as the victor over sin and Satan, but as our substitute. God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed in our place. Uh, this idea of Christ as the Lamb is so much part of our Christian lingo that sometimes I wonder if we forget the full import of what it means and the, the rich history of this image in the life of God's people through the ages. And so tonight in our short time together in the Word, I'd like to take this few minutes to meditate on where this, this picture of the Lamb of God originated, or at least where it finds its kind of high point in the story of God's people. In order for us to understand the dark day on Golgotha's hill, friend, we really need to understand that great and terrible midnight so long ago in Egypt. So please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 12. Exodus 12, it's on page 53 of the Bible underneath your chairs. For over 400 years, Israel was enslaved in oppressive bondage to the nation of Egypt, the superpower of the day. But as God had promised Abraham long before his grandson Jacob and his sons immigrated to Egypt, he purposed to deliver his people and return them to the land he promised. You probably know the story. In Exodus 5, God called Moses to confront the great Pharaoh and demand the release of his people. When Pharaoh refused, God 
called Moses to declare his intent to judge Egypt by means of divine plagues that would befall them. And by the time we get to Exodus 12, the Lord had sent nine of those ten plagues. And yet still Pharaoh's heart was hard in his obstinance against the Lord. He refused to let God's people go. And so the Lord promised one last climactic plague in order to shame Egypt's gods, bring Pharaoh to his knees, and set his people free. In chapter 11, the Lord said that he would pass through the land of Egypt at midnight in a display of his, ju- of his judgment. Every firstborn of Egypt would die. There would be no discrimination. The Lord warned in chapter 11 that this judgment would extend from the, the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. God's purpose for this severe judgment is clear. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Friends, in the Passover and Exodus, the one true and living God, the creator and judge of all was proving his supremacy over every false imposter gods, the gods of Egypt. He showed just how impotent they were to protect them. So many of Egypt's gods were represented by the animals. And so the Lord would kill even the firstborn of the animals. The, Egypt, uh, the Egyptians excuse me, worshiped Pharaoh as God. And indeed, Pharaoh would be powerless to protect even his own firstborn son. And that's exactly what happened. According to the end of chapter 12, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive who was, in the, who was in the dungeon, the Lord's judgment fell. Verse 30 of chapter 12 says, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And so God saved Israel by means of his judgment. And friends, what becomes so abundantly evident in this story, this great saving event in Israel's history, is not just the magnitude of his judgment against Egypt, but how equally deserving Israel was to be the recipient of God's just wrath. Israel herself, God's covenant people, stood deserving of his justice In light of God's great unflinching and perfect holiness, they too deserve to die. In fact, the only reason that God spared them is that he made a way for a substitute to take their place. Tonight, I'd like to draw our attention to just two things about this story of Passover. Number one, the need for the Passover lamb. Number two, the provision of the Passover lamb. The need and the provision. Beloved, the Israelites were not inherently more righteous than the Egyptians because they were part of the covenant. They were not somehow exempt from the need of Passover because they were acquainted with the one true God. No, as sons and daughters of Adam, they too needed a rescue. They too needed to be shielded from God's wrath just as much as Pharaoh did. Friends, the difference between Israel and Egypt was not anything human. The only difference was divine mercy. God didn't deliver his people because they earned it. He delivered them as a monument to his grace. 
The angel of, of death didn't stop at each door as he passed over and say, hey, hey, just checking to see if anyone worthy lives in this house. No, it had nothing to do with the worthiness of the Israelites, but all to do with the blood on the post of the door and the mercy of the one passing over. And so from the first Passover in Egypt to the last true Passover in the upper room in Jerusalem, celebrated by Jesus and his disciples, God's people remembered that he had treated them in ways that they did not deserve. He had remembered his holy promise and mercifully and powerfully saved them. Friends, I wonder tonight if you understand yourself to have a similar and even greater need than the Israelites of Egypt. I'm not talking about your life situation or even our kind of national existence here, whether we're in bondage or freedom. Greater than any earthly slavery or oppression is the spiritual slavery that all of us are born into. As sons and daughters of Adam, the Bible says that each one of us are by nature slaves. But unfortunately, we're in bondage to something that masquerades as freedom. As shares of Adam's sin nature, we, we flaunt our independence from God and we, we prize our ability to determine our own reality and express our own sense of who we are and what we should be. But ironically, the more free we think we are, the stronger, the stronger the shackles of sin's grip on our hearts. But that's not all. We're not only slaves by nature, we are slaves to death by guilt. We, like the Egyptians and the Israelites of old, have a punched one-way ticket straight to the grave and to an eternity separated from God in judgment. We are by nature slaves to sin and slaves to death on our own without the Lord Jesus. Because of God's perfect goodness, he has to deal justly with our sin. Otherwise, God would cease to be good. Friends, left to ourself, without a Passover, as it were, our plight is hopeless. Like Israel, we need a deliverance. We need a rescuer. Humanity needs a substitute. And that brings me to my second point tonight in this passage, the provision of the Passover lamb. Friends, how did God redeem his people on that great night? How did he set them free? It was quite literally through Passover. Just as the name itself indicates or commemorates, God would pass over in mercy those who deserve his judgment. And the benefit of God's mercy came only through a substitute. At the center of, a, of the Passover is the slain lamb. God instructed his people, Helene read earlier, for, for each household of Israel to, to kill a lamb. Perhaps there's no animal that more poignantly communicates innocence than a lamb. But this lamb was not just to be innocent or was not just innocent, it was to be precious. Verse 5 says that the lamb was to be without defect or blemish. And then in verse 7 and in verses 21 to 24, God highlights the purpose of this very strange command, at least to our modern ears. The people of Israel were to take some of the lamb's blood, to dip a branch of hyssop in it and, and smear or sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the lintel and on the two side posts of the front door of their home. 
And on that night of the Lord's judgment, God's people, the Lord said, do not wander out of your house, but rather they were to shelter, as it were, underneath the blood. The Lord had already announced his intention to pass through Egypt in judgment, but now he promises to mercifully pass over the blood-shielded homes, relenting from his wrath when he sees the blood. Verse 13 says, look at it with me. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He would pass through Egypt, but he would pass over his people. Why? Why would God prescribe such a grisly method? Like, couldn't we have done something a bit cleaner than this? Why the blood? What's with all the blood? Is God some sort of bloodthirsty deity? No, Moses tells us clearly in Leviticus 17.11 what the blood is all about. He's speaking of the sacrifices in Israel's later life. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, friends, in, in a poignant and graphic way, the blood symbolized the life of the victim and the life of of those for whom the victim gave its life. It was meant to profoundly proclaim life for life by means of death. The innocent for the guilty. The victim for the offenders. Friends, praise God, we are not left wondering what the purpose of the Passover, what it's really all about for us today. Because on this dark and terrible night, our God was laying down the architecture of our salvation. God intended that Passover lamb and the celebration all through the ages for Israel to function like a sneak preview of the ultimate substitute that he would put forward to ransom by his blood, his people from sin and death, the lamb of God. Not just the Jews, but for all those who would trust in him. When Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry, John the Baptist cried out in John 1, 29 and 36, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the crucifixion account in John 19, just after the portion that Michelle read earlier, the apostle John writes that when the soldiers saw that Jesus was already dead on the cross, they declined to break his legs as they normally did with crucified criminals to hasten their death. John writes, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus is the lamb of God. Paul could not have been clearer in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter likewise wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. John, in his vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 5, saw at the center of it all a lamb standing as if it had been slain. A lamb later said in, in Revelation to have purchased men by his blood. 
Friends, in Christ Jesus, all that we read tonight, all the, the pictures of this lamb the sh- were just mere shadows that gave way to the full substance in Jesus, the precious and holy lamb of God. Friends, Jesus fulfilled the, the pattern and the purpose of the Passover. At the cross, like at the Passover, God showed himself to be both judge and savior. He showed himself to be both judge and savior. Because friends, to purchase the release of his people from their slavery to sin and death, what did God do? God had to fully satisfy the divine penalty for sin. He had to fully judge sin by an eternal death while at the same time passing over in mercy those whom he redeemed. And so in jaw-dropping love, what did he do? He put forward himself. He put forward himself in the person of the divine son, our Lord Jesus. Beloved, only God could satisfy the demands of his justice. And only a perfect man could stand as an adequate substitute for the sins of men. This is why Jesus is the spotless lamb. He shared our humanity, but he did not share our sin nature. He partook of our human experience without partaking of our guilt. Only he was qualified to be the lamb of God. Friends, this is why the shed blood of God's lamb shields us eternally from his wrath. Not because there's anything magical or anything mystical about Jesus's blood, but because the blood of the sinless God man symbolizes the satisfaction of sin's penalty for the benefit of sin's perpetrators. It symbolizes the satisfaction of sin's penalty for the benefit of sin's perpetrators. Remember the significance of the blood of the Passover life for life by means of death. John Stott wrote this the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Friends, we know this from our experience in in life. When When a person takes the place of another to save them from pain or to save them from death. It's just universally regarded as the the most noble and high form of love imaginable. This is why we honor fallen soldiers as having paid the the ultimate sacrifice. I read a stunning story this week of of a man at Auschwitz who, for no explicable reason other than love, took the place of another man in the starvation chamber. So because that man had a a wife and family and this man who sacrificed himself was single. Is there any greater love than taking the place of another in death? So friends, it really shouldn't surprise us that this is the precise way that our God chose to save us. He put forward himself in Christ the Son, our sin bearer. On the cross, holy love satisfied holy wrath. Christ's death met the demands of justice while at the same time showcasing the fathomless depths of God's mercy for us. 
Friends in Egypt, in order for the people to be shielded from God's wrath on that great and terrible night, they had to take God at His word, didn't they? They had to believe that judgment was actually about to fall. They had to trust in God's provision of the blood of the Lamb that it would indeed be effective for their inclusion in the mercy of the Passover. They had to what? They had to individually appropriate it by faith. And so it is with us. Friends, God put Christ forward as a sin-bearing sacrifice, but it must be received by faith. It's a full reliance with our mind and with our, with our heart that God in Christ has atoned for my sin, for our sins. Not that he atoned like 90% of the way and then we kind of, you know, we make up the last 10% by our good works and church attendance and things like that. No, we come to the Christ the Lamb and believe that Jesus paid it all. It's to believe that the innocent bore the sins of the guilty so that the guilty could go free. Friends, it's to participate in this far greater exodus out of the realm of sin and death. Yet we have to participate in it by faith in the Lamb. If you're here not a Christian tonight, I pray that you would not harden your heart against such love. I pray that you would see the ferocity of God's just wrath. See it in relation to the sin of Egypt and be warned that God's wrath, that wrath that fell on that night, will fall again on the last day. It will be equally swift, but far more terrible because it will not just bring about the death of the firstborn, but the eternal separation of all humanity who have not turned to God in faith in Christ. Friend, rather look at God's provision of the lamb. Look at God's provision of the lamb and let your heart warm to such love. He has made a way back for you by trusting in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, I I trust that this, this passage has reminded us tonight of the depth of God's love for us as his people. I hope it's stirred in your heart a response of love and gratitude that God in Christ would love you like this. Brother, sister, if you're struggling in sin tonight, look to the cross and see it atoned for and forgiven by the Lamb. If you're wrestling with fears and doubts and a lack of assurance of faith, look to the Lamb and see God's love poured out for you. If you're tonight being tempted to walk away from Christ altogether, look to the cross and let the holy love of God grab you and keep you near in his love. Friends, for all of us, I pray the Lord would renew in our hearts a full-hearted worship and a deep love for God's precious lamb, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you for the whole counsel of your word that teaches us of the nature of your mercy from cover to cover. Oh, Lord, we praise you for what we even see in the, that original Passover and how it points to and is fulfilled by our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave himself for us in love. 
Oh, Father, I pray tonight that we might indeed worship the Lamb of God. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we worship you for taking our place. Where would we be without your mercy? Oh, Father, we praise you tonight for even what we're about to, to see and remind ourselves of in the Lord's Supper, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might remember, not just with our minds, but we might remember and memorialize you with our souls. That we would come to you with hearts full of assurance and faith and that we would respond to you because the love of Christ compels us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.